I invite you to begin turning in your Bible to Luke chapter 13, where today we're going to be looking at what God says about who gets into the kingdom of God. Now, as you're doing that, I feel like I might need to tell you who I am. Uh, As you know, I've been gone for several weeks. Uh, I'm Roger Poupart. I have the privilege of leading a, a great team of pastors here, as you already knew, but you've also seen just over the last several weeks as these gifted men have shared God's word with us. I've been blessed by their teaching as I know you have. And so they've continued our series through the gospel of Luke. And what we've seen is, as we've gone through chapters 12 and 13 of Luke, there's been this back and forth between judgment and hope. And Jesus is central to both, as Jesus is the one who will judge. John 5.22 tells us that not even the Father judges, but he's given all judgment to the Son. And Jesus is also the hope we have. He is the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So he's central to both of these themes. He's also central to the conflict that we've seen taking place all throughout Luke. Uh, As well as in other pages of the, the Bible, as you read through, you see the religious leaders were in a constant confrontation with Jesus. And, and part of that is because they feared a loss of power and influence. They had their own set of rules. They said there was a certain way to live and there was a way you could get into heaven. And they wanted people to follow what they were saying. Last week we saw another example of the conflict that took place as Jesus healed a woman in the synagogue who had been uh, diseased for 18 years. And you'll remember, rather than rejoicing at this woman's healing, the synagogue official got angry and he chastised the congregation. He said, he said this demonstration of Jesus' power and God's mercy shouldn't happen in church of all places, right? He says, don't come to the synagogue to be healed on the Sabbath. So what we're going to be looking at today in Luke 13 to 18 is connected. And we know that because as Luke writes this gospel in the original Greek text, he uses the word un. And un is a connective word that you'll often see translated as therefore in the Bible. And whenever you see the word therefore, ask yourself, what is it there for? And uh, now as I mentioned that, the passage I'm actually reading from in the New American Standard doesn't translate it as therefore, but he says so. What he's saying is, based upon what we've seen, the, the story continues. And I invite you to look with me now at Luke 13, 18 through 21. It says, so he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, a mustard seed is tiny. And a mustard seed, while it begins as this tiny seed, it grows rapidly. It's a shrub that can grow up to 30 feet in a single season. And that's why you often see it referred to as a tree, because it grows to these tree-like proportions very quickly. And one way these parables connect with the miracle we looked at last week is there it was a single small event. One woman whose life was affected as she was freed from bondage. And yet, it it is a a demonstration of the power and mercy of God that will grow all throughout uh, the world as the gospel message spreads. It revealed Jesus' power and authority over sickness and over Satan. And it pointed to the ultimate 
destruction of Satan's kingdom here on earth as Jesus would establish his. And so this is the context of what we're looking at. The image of birds flocking to the branches of a tree is used in the Bible to describe a great kingdom. Uh, You can find that in many places. One is in Daniel chapter 4 where there Nebuchadnezzar had a dream where he saw this, this great tree with all these birds flocking in it. It represented the extent of his kingdom and those who were being drawn to it. Now you'll remember that in that passage, the tree is ultimately cut down and made a stump because Nebuchadnezzar was prideful and he did not acknowledge God. But there are other places where it speaks of God's kingdom and it, it points to, to great kingdoms. You can find those uh, in Judges 9.15, Psalm 104, Ezekiel 17.23, and again in chapter 31 of Ezekiel in verses 3 through 14. And here in Luke 13, Jesus tells us the tree represents God's kingdom. And the birds that are flocking to it, the people that are coming and gathering, are the nations from all around the world. It's not just the Jews, there are Gentiles included. As he says in verses 29 through 30, there are people coming from the four corners of the world. Now the second parable he uses is a picture of leaven. And in Luke 12, 1 earlier, we we saw in a previous message where Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And in that message, we talked about how leaven works. Remember, it's, it causes this fermentation in the dough, which makes the bread rise. And so people point to that process of, of the spread and the rising, again, to point to how the kingdom of God, the gospel message has spread all throughout the earth. But there's another aspect to it, too, As well, because you remember that leaven, we saw in that previous passage, was used throughout the Bible to represent sin and evil. It was defined that way in the book of Exodus. And and as you look all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, leaven is used uh, in this way to picture sin and evil. And so this, this aspect, and you're thinking, but how is there evil In the kingdom of God. Well, at one level, it's not just the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It also related to what they were teaching. Uh, Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 16, 12, where it says, Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the religious leaders of the day. And what they were teaching, their way uh, that people were supposed to live in order to get to God, was contrary to what God had revealed. In Galatians 5, 9, we see what it is that they were teaching. There it says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And as you read in Galatians 5, 1 through 8, what God has Paul tell us is about the teaching that was going on in that day. And what they were teaching is that you, you were to follow the law. Or they were saying that if you had the sign of circumcision, which the Jews had as a sign of the covenant, that these were the ways you were saved. But what God said is, it's not through the law, through works. It's not through your lineage as Jews that you're saved. Rather, the scriptures are very clear that salvation comes through the grace of God. It is a gift accepted. You go all the way back to the Old Testament. It says of Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the nation, he believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so this is what Jesus was teaching while the religious leaders were teaching something different. And this created this conflict between them. And the first century audience knew this was the debate taking place, which is why as we keep reading here in Luke 13, 22, 
13.22 through 25 tells us this. And Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few that are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, or I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we, are, we, we ate and drank in your presence, and, and you taught in our streets. And he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first who will be last. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached him saying, go away, leave here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the religious leaders warn Jesus about Herod. They say, King Herod is trying to kill you. Now, it's not that they were concerned about Jesus' safety. Remember, they were plotting to kill him themselves. They were just mad. They were mad about what Jesus was teaching, how, how uh, the people were listening to him, and, and they wanted him to go away. You can look back at Luke chapter 4, where we saw in verses 25 through 30, you remember the last time Jesus talked about how the Gentiles would be blessed, the reaction of the Jews. They took him out of the city and they tried to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. And so here is Jesus is again talking about God's blessing on, on the Gentiles, saying they will be welcomed into the kingdom. They're the people of verse 29 from the four corners of the compass that will be there. And when he says in verse 30 that some of the last will be first, he was talking about the Gentiles. You see, the Gentiles were, were called dogs by the Jews. They said they're the last, the least. They're inferior people. And what Jesus says is they will not be left out. And they will not be left even to scavenge crumbs from the table, but they will be seated at the banquet table. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus goes on to tell the Jews in verse 28, some of them will not be there. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. There was this uh, old tent revival taking place. 
And the pastor was, was preaching on this passage, and it was one of those fire and brimstone type of messages. And he was warning people that if they didn't turn to Jesus, if they didn't, didn't repent of their sins and, and, and accept Christ as their Savior, that they would face this judgment. And, and so he thundered, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this older woman who was sitting there listening stood up, and she said, but I don't have any teeth. And he thundered, teeth will be provided. (laughs) Whenever you read about weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's used throughout the scriptures to speak of hell. It's used to speak of a terrible time of judgment. The weeping speaks of the regret, the remorse people feel that they rejected Jesus and are thus rejected themselves. The gnashing of teeth is because of the suffering of people. Now, friends, it's not that God is this sadistic God. It's not that God takes pleasure in anyone facing that. In fact, the scriptures tell us God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to know him. I want to remind you that God provided his son. He sent Jesus to die for us so we did not have to face that judgment. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When God talks about this coming judgment, he doesn't want you or I to face that. But he says, I have provided a way home to heaven through my son. And it is your choice. If you reject Jesus, then you will be rejected. The world tells us all roads lead to heaven. Everybody gets a second chance. Everybody's going to get in. But Jesus tells us plainly, the way home to the kingdom is narrow. And he says, not everybody gets in. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's provided the way home. We don't don't get to God by being good. It's not by keeping the law or going to church enough or putting money in the offering plate or doing all kinds of good things. We can't earn our way to heaven. We don't get there by being good. We get there by what God did for us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. As Jesus is warning the Jews here, they're facing this coming judgment. It's because of the hardness of their heart. It's not because they didn't have an opportunity In fact, God sent the Messiah and the message to the Jews first. We read that in Romans 1.16. There it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And as we're looking ahead to this time of judgment, Jesus says in Luke 13.26, You will tell me on that day, Well, Jesus, we ate with you. We had fellowship. Jesus, we were there. We listened to you. We heard what you taught. And Jesus says, but you didn't receive me as your Savior. And because of that, you're lost. Corey Ten Boom's father once said, just because a mouse is in the cookie jar, it doesn't make it a cookie. And friends, just because you're here in church today, it doesn't make you a Christian. Having head knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did is not enough. You have to receive that gift. You have to accept that gift. These Jews were with Jesus. They heard what he was teaching. But he said, you rejected me. You would not receive my gift of grace. 
In John 1.12, we're told, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know how much he loves you? You may be sitting here saying, but, but I, I, how could God love me? I've made such a mess of my life. God doesn't want me. If you think that's the case, I want you to read Romans 5.8. Because it says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were in rebellion, far from God, it says, Christ died for us. He didn't say, I love you this much or this much. He said, I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide and he died for us. And he invites us to come to those open arms and receive the gift of grace. Back in the days when the, the Old West was still in play and they were settling the frontier, there was this frontier town where there was a little boy sitting in a, in a wagon while his, his parents were in the general store getting some, some provisions. And something spooked the horse, and this wagon takes off out of, out of town. And, and this, this horse is at a full gallop, and as it's going along, this little boy is in the back of the wagon being bounced along, and the horse is headed for this, this, this chasm, and he's going to go off and, and take the little boy with him. And there's a young man on horseback that sees this taking place, and he rides out after the wagon at a breakneck speed. He's risking his life to catch up to the wagon. And he comes up alongside it and he leaps into the wagon. He grabs the reins and he's able to stop the horse and save this little boy's life. Now fast forward a number of years. This little boy who had been saved in the back of the wagon unfortunately grew up to be a lawless man. He he was a frontier criminal who who did a lot of very uh, horrible things including killing people. And one day he's in court facing a judge to be sentenced for his, his capital crimes. And as he's there before the judge, he he looks up and he notices the man on the stand was that person who saved his life many years before. He recognizes this judge as being the person who risked his life to save him. And based upon that, the criminal says to him, he reminds this man of who he was and what he had done, and he pleads for mercy. But but these words from the bench silenced his plea. He said, on that day I was your savior, but today I'm your judge and I must sentence you to be hanged. And we are going to hear those same words if we reject Jesus Christ. A little while later, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15. And we're going to see where Jesus Christ is the judge on the throne. And what he says to those who are there, there was a time where I offered grace and I wanted to be your savior, but today I am your judge. And because of your sins, because of your crimes and your rejection of my payment in your place, he says, I must sentence you to the second death, the lake of fire that we call hell. Now, as we talk about this, as we talk about what is coming and as we look at what's happening here in Luke, I want to take you through uh, the events that are mentioned here in Luke chapter 13. They encompass much of the end time events. And because of that, I'm going to put a bunch of slides up here on the, on the screens in order to help you. And any time we have slides up here, they go on our website along with the sermon. So you don't have to feverishly write or take out your phones and take pictures. You're certainly welcome to do that if you want. 
But I'm just telling you, you can go to waysidechapel.org and all these slides will be there. So you can just focus on what we're talking about if you'd like and uh, download these slides later. As you look in the Bible in Hebrews 9, 27 through 28, it tells us, "...in as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment." So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You see, what Jesus told us is there is a time coming when the door will be shut. He says it will be too late. There are those who will tell you that after you die, you get a second chance. You can, you can say, oh, now I understand. Now I know who Jesus was, and I want to accept his death now. And what the scriptures are very clear is, after we die comes judgment. The decisions we made in this lifetime determine our eternal destiny. There is no second chance. We have to accept God's gift of grace during this life. I want you to notice as well what it says there about how when Jesus came to earth the first time, it was to offer himself as our sacrifice. It says he bore the sins of many. Now it tells us Jesus is coming back a second time. And it will not be the baby of Bethlehem. It will not be the baby who grew up to become the Christ of Calvary who died on the cross. When Jesus returns the second time, he comes as the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be leading the armies of heaven as he returns at his second coming. It says he's not coming back for salvation in reference to sin. He's handled that once and for all at the cross. When he comes back the next time, it's for those who are eagerly awaiting his return. Now, in order to understand all that's happening... As I told you here in Luke 13, he's covering a large amount of the end-time events. And as you know, kind of the pinnacle prophecy that deals with all of the end-time events is found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It's called the 77s of Daniel. It's the prophetic 490-year uh, period that points to how God's plan has unfolded throughout history. Now, I wish we had time to go all the way into Daniel's prophecy, but we don't. So let me just water ski over it. As you look, Daniel talks about the seven weeks or the 49 years and then the 62 weeks or 434 years. And then it comes to Daniel 9.26 where it says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. It speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The word Messiah in Hebrew is Hamashiach. In Greek, it's Christos, Jesus the Christ. That's why we call him Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And it says, when Jesus came, he took on flesh and blood for one purpose, which was to take on our sins, to shed his blood, to wash away our sins. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. It's why Jesus uh, took on flesh and blood. Daniel 9.24 gives us the summary in the timeline where it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. And this is it, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And this is what's happening in Luke 13, 33, where Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus knew when he came, he came to be the Messiah who would be cut off, who would be crucified on a cross in Jerusalem in order to pay the penalty of sin. He went there to spread his arms wide, as he said in Luke thirteen thirty four. He said, as a hen gathers its brood under its wings, he said, I spread out my wings, my arms, in order to gather you 
in order to save you. And when we get to Luke chapter 19 in verses 41 through 42, you can look ahead there when you get home and read that. It says Jesus wept over the city as he stood on the Mount of Olives and he looked at Jerusalem. It says he wept. I was just there with about 50 folks from Wayside just a few weeks ago. We stood on the Mount of Olives and we looked across the valley to the city and there Jesus looked at the city and he wept. And he said, if only you had known this time of your visitation. And you can ask the question, well, how in the world would the Jews know? Well, it's right here. You see, Jesus pointed to the prophecies all pointed to who he was. And what Jesus was talking about as he uses this verbiage about uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's found in Psalm 118.26. It's a direct quotation of a messianic psalm pointing to when the king would come into the city. And this is the event we celebrate as Palm Sunday. As Jesus entered the city, it's what's happening there in Luke 19, 41 through 42 that we're eventually going to get to. And Jesus is saying, if only you had known this time of your visitation. And, And the Pharisees knew about it. They knew the prophecies. In fact, you'll recall when Jesus was there on Palm Sunday, the people were shouting this out. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leader's response was to say, shh, don't say that. That's for the Messiah. Don't, don't apply that to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. And they're saying, well, we don't like that. So don't say that. They rejected him. And because of their rejection, Jesus says here, they will be rejected. He says in Luke 13, 35, behold, your house is left to you desolate. The reference to house is a dual meaning. It pointed to the house of Israel. It speaks how the people of Israel would be scattered. The house also referred to the temple that is there. When you go to Jerusalem today, you see the the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim temple and the Al-Asq Mosque there on the Temple Mount. The temple of God, the house of God, was leveled by the Romans in 70 A.D. The people of Israel were scattered by the Romans in 70 A.D. Just a few decades after Jesus spoke these words, the prophecy was fulfilled. He said, because of your rejection of me, you will be rejected. Now, the story doesn't end, as we know, with the crucifixion. Because... Jesus rose from the dead three days later. He walked the earth for 40 days, appearing to more than 500 witnesses before he ascended into heaven. And and it's there in heaven that he's waiting to return at his second coming, which is what Luke 13, 35 is pointing to when Jesus says, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They wouldn't say it on Palm Sunday. But he says, there is a time coming when every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. You will say, blessed is he. You will acknowledge that I was who I am, the promised Messiah, the King of Kings. And as we wait for that to happen, we're in what theologians call the church age. The church age began at the day of Pentecost when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given, when the church was born. And the church age will end at an event called the rapture. Now, when you hear all these words like rapture, they're they're taken from the Latin. Rapture is raptura, which means to be caught up. 
And the rapture speaks of when we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And you can read those passages, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, that speak of how the dead who have died in Christ, their physical bodies that are buried, will be resurrected. And they will go up to meet their souls that are already with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 eight tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our physical shells remain. If Jesus were to return at this moment, those of us who are believers in Christ, we will physically be raptured as well. We will rise to meet the Lord in the air, and then we go to heaven to meet him. That's very important because at the second coming, we're going to see Christ doesn't just come in the air. He comes all the way back to earth. And so what happens, you notice I have up there the pre-tribulational rapture. Now I know there are people here that believe we will go through the time of tribulation. And if that's your perspective, you're welcome to it. If you want to go through that terrible time of suffering, you're welcome. I'm not. Uh, because as I read 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 and Revelation 3.10-11, through 11, it tells us that Jesus will keep us from the time of testing. It says he will take us not through but out of the Greek word that is used there, the preposition. He will take us out of the time of trouble. Believers will be raptured. We will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, everyone is not raptured at that moment. Remember, there are Old Testament saints who died previous to the church age. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are mentioned by Jesus as being there in the kingdom. He talks about the prophets of old. The Old Testament prophets and and patriarchs and saints will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. This is what Daniel 12, 1 through 2 tells us. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress. What is a time of distress? It's a tribulation. He says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, so it's post-tribulation, at that time, your people, the Jews, everyone who is found written in the book, these are believers, They didn't know the name of Jesus necessarily, but they, like Abraham, they believed in God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. It says, everyone who's found written in the book of life will be rescued. Many of those who sleep, that is die, those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. Do you see the resurrection of the Old Testament saints taking place? Now listen, there's another resurrection coming. But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's speaking of those who go to hell, the lake of fire, as we'll see. So this time of distress that's never occurred is called the tribulation. Again, as you read through Daniel's prophecy and all the other places, you can read all the way through the book of Revelation, the seal, the trumpet, the bowl judgments. We could spend weeks just on this alone. But it tells us during the tribulation period, remember, God is going to give over the world to Satan and the unholy trinity. There's Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And the first part of the tribulation, the nation of Israel will be regathered. The temple will be rebuilt there in Jerusalem. They're going to be regathered for worship. Things are going to look like they're okay. But then Satan reveals himself for who he truly is. In the middle of the week, three and a half years in, the abomination of desolation takes place. And this is where he demands to be worshiped as God. And the period of intense persecution happens. This is where people who have come, all Christians were raptured before the tribulation. But the Bibles remain. 
The sermons that have been preached are on the internet. They remain. Some of you who are sitting here today who have heard the truth but maybe have never received Jesus, you will remain and you will go into the tribulation if you've not received Jesus as your Savior. And so many will come to faith during the tribulation and Satan will persecute them. If they do not worship the beast, then they will suffer and many will be martyred. These are called the tribulation martyrs. So they're dying during this time. Israel will have a special level of persecution taking place. Satan is trying to destroy the people. Now the second coming of Christ is, is going to happen. But let me read you first Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6. Because there it says, Then I saw the thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And, and it says, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are the tribulation martyrs because it says of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on the hand. And they came to life. You see the resurrection of these tribulation believers. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now that's very important. The thousand years is the kingdom we're talking about. It's called the millennial kingdom. Remember the Latin word millennium means a thousand, so it is a thousand-year reign. This is, not, uh, this is a real and literal kingdom that we're talking about. So they're brought back to life for the millennial kingdom. This is post-tribulation. So they're resurrected with the Old Testament saints during this time. It says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Are you with me? So there's this thousand-year period. The the Old Testament saints are being resurrected. And and the tribulation saints are being resurrected to enjoy the thousand-year reign. But it says there are others who are still dead from the beginning of time all the way through. These are the unbelievers, as we're going to see on an upcoming chart. They are not resurrected until the end of the millennial kingdom. I know I'm dumping the truck on you, but this is great stuff. It says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are the, is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. These are believers. You're blessed. It says, because over them the second death, that's hell, has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Do you see what's happening? So there's this tribulation period. There's this horrible time taking place. Have you ever heard of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon? The Hebrew word for mountain is har. And the place where the armies of the world will gather for this climactic campaign against Israel is the plain of Megiddo. Har Megiddo or Armageddon. Again, just a few weeks ago, we stood on that mountain. We overlooked the plain. We saw where the armies of the world will gather. So they they come and they're marching on Jerusalem to wipe out the Jews. And just as it looks like Israel will be destroyed, the second coming of Jesus Christ happens. And here are many passages. Again, you can get this slide off the internet and go through and read these passages for yourself. But at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the battle of Armageddon takes place. Now, you see there at the bottom in Revelation 20, verses 2 through 3, that Satan is bound. Satan has been leading this unholy trinity during the tribulation. Jesus removes him from the earth. He puts him in something called the abyss. He's chained and thrown there. That's not the lake of fire. That's his permanent home. But right now he's held in this waiting place 
for a thousand years. And that thousand years is the millennial kingdom that we will be uh, co-reigning with Christ, it says, during that time. Now, I told you that the return of Jesus will be physically to the earth. Listen to Zechariah 14.4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the mount will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So Jesus will physically descend and stand again on the Mount of Olives. And the geography will change right now. The mountain will be split in two, creating a new valley, an escape route for those who were were pushed up against it and, and were about to be destroyed. So he returns physically to the earth. There's this battle of Armageddon. And that's where the followers of Satan are wiped out. All these armies of the world coming against Israel, they're all killed. Satan is bound for a thousand years. The satanic beast and false prophet, Revelation 19.20 says, are taken and thrown into the lake of fire. They go to their permanent home in hell. But Satan is reserved for a thousand years, and you're going to see why in a minute. Now, this second coming begins the millennial kingdom. Remember, we're here in Luke 13 talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is it. And, and remember we read in Hebrews 9.28 that Jesus will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. His second appearance here now is to redeem the nation of Israel and to uh, set up his, his, his reign here, his physical reign on earth. It's not to save people. That was done when he died on the cross. Rather, it's the believer's time of reward. You can look over at Luke 14, 14. We're going to be there next week. And in Luke 14, 14, it says, And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the righteous. This is where we as believers receive some of our eternal rewards. If you think you're going to be in heaven floating on a cloud strumming a harp, that's pretty boring. That's not what heaven is about. That's not what eternity is about. Uh, when we get to, to Luke chapter 19, we're going to talk about the parable of the minas. Like I said, there's so much I wish we could talk about today. But we're going to hold back talking about how we're rewarded fully until we get there. But I'll give you a preview. Uh, the Bible talks about two judgments. The non-believer is judged at the great white throne judgment. That's not for us. That determines who goes to hell. You as a Christian are not at that judgment because your eternal destiny was already decided. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, God paid for your penalty of sin called death. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, when you're with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15 tells us you will be judged, but it is not for entrance into heaven. You're judged to see what kind of rewards you receive. It's called the Bema Seat because the Greek word used is Bematos in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bematos, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Bible tells us our life works will be put into the fire. The bad stuff, the wood, hay, and stubble burns up. The precious things that remain are your rewards. This word Bema is used of the Olympic medal stand. When you compete well in an event, you receive a medal. Well done, good and faithful servant, God will tell some of us. 
And so the way you live your life here on earth doesn't earn entrance into heaven, but it does determine the rewards that you will receive, the responsibilities you will have when you're in the kingdom. Again, we have to wait till Luke 19 to unpack this fully because we have to keep moving. So at the end of the thousand years, you see in Revelation 20, verse 7, Satan is released. Now, he gathers together people for a final rebellion. And you're saying, well, where is he getting these rebellious people? I want you to remember that after the tribulation, all of the non-believers were killed. All of those physically on the earth who had come to faith during the tribulation, they entered the millennial kingdom alive. They haven't been raptured yet. So there are physical people like you and I today who enter into the millennial kingdom. And you know what's happening over that thousand-year period? They're having children. Their children are having children. Their children's children are having children. And as hard as this may be for some of you to believe, while Jesus is physically seated there in Jerusalem, you can read those passages how the nations will come and see him and present gifts to him. Some of those people have hardened hearts and will not receive the Lord. Remember there's leaven in the kingdom, there's wickedness, there's evil. Some will not receive the Lord even though they see him face to face. And so at this time, they will be gathered by Satan. They'll try to rebel against God one final time. And God says, I'm done. You're done, actually. The battle of Gog and Magog takes place in Revelation 20, verse 7 through 9. And that's where God wipes out all rebellion. He throws Satan, as you see in Revelation 20:10, into the lake of fire or hell. And, and this will then lead to uh, the final judgment, because remember, those who uh, at that time are resurrected, this takes us to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It says, And I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. We call this hell. This is what? The second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second resurrection, the one you don't want to be at. Because everybody who's resurrected at this point has one destination, hell, the lake of fire. Jesus says, you owe a penalty for sin called death. And because you rejected my payment in your place. Remember, he looked in the book of life. And he said, your name is not here. You didn't accept my gift. So let me open the books, plural. Those of you who say, well, I think I've been good enough to get to heaven. God says, well, let's see. Oh, I see great stuff here. You did all kinds of nice things. But I also see where you sinned. Everybody sinned. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we've all sinned, we owe a penalty. Romans 6.23, remember, tells us the penalty. The wages, what you earn, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. They've rejected the free gift, so Jesus says, well, 
I am a loving God, but I'm holy and just, so the penalty has to be paid. You wanted to pay it yourself, you get to. And he sends them to the second death. They go to hell. All of us who are in the kingdom as believers of Jesus Christ, we then go into what is called the eternal state. The new heavens and the new earth are created. The scriptures tell us that God will destroy everything with fire. It's all corrupted. It's leaven. There's been sin and evil and corruption and tainting. And God will wipe it out, recreate everything in perfection. Satan will be in hell for eternity. He will never again be free to corrupt creation in the world again. And so as we come to a close today, the question for you is, what have you done with what God offers to you, this gift of new and eternal life? It goes all the way back to the cross of Jesus, where he came and died to pay the penalty of death for your sin and mine. And the choice is ours. Will we accept his gift of new life His gift of grace. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's not how good you are that gets you to heaven. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. And so the question today is, have you received God's gift of new life? And if not, why? I'm not trying to scare you into heaven. I'm not trying to cajole you to make that decision. I just don't want any of you there in that place of punishment called hell. And God doesn't want any of you there. Remember, he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to know him. And so the question for you today is if you've never received God's gift of new life, and if it's because you thought that you could get there on your own. The Jews said, well, we're children of Abraham. That's going to get us in. He says, no. Well, we try to keep the law. He says, you don't, you don't get there by fulfilling the law because you've all broken it. He says, you get there through grace. And I offer you that gift this morning. And if you finally understand what God has done for you and, and what it all means, and you're ready to receive God's gift to you this morning, I want to end by giving you an opportunity through prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But you do have to humble yourself and in your mind and your heart, you have to say to God, God, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I've made mistakes in my life. That's what sin is. Remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, his standard of perfection. You have not been 100% perfect. None of us have. And so he says, as those who owe the penalty of death, I paid that penalty for you and I offer you that gift. And all you have to do today is receive it, accept it. Turn from your sin and to me to be your Savior, and you'll be saved. If that's your desire, if you'd like to receive that, will you join me as we pray this prayer? Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. I've disobeyed you. I've done things against what you called me to do, and Because of that, I owe a penalty. A penalty of sin that you tell us is death. I thank you, God, that you loved me. You loved me so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place. To pay that penalty of death that I owed. Jesus, today I accept you as my personal Savior. I accept your death where your blood washed away my sins. 
I believe, Jesus, that you showed you were who you said you were, the Messiah, the promised Son of God, that after you died on the cross, you rose from the dead three days later. And I know, Jesus, you're in heaven where you want me to be with you. And I thank you that you provided the way home. So today, Lord, I'm, I'm entering through the narrow gate. I'm accepting your death to pay for my sins. I thank you, God, for this gift of new and eternal life. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are going to be prayer leaders here at the front after we sing this closing song. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time, or you're still needing to know more about what it means to place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, please come to the front. Tell us that step you've taken or let us answer the questions you might have so that we can help you to begin to grow in your faith. For the rest of us who know the Lord, he calls on us to go and share the good news of the gospel.